SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. Hank's not here, ha ha ha, but guess who is? <laughs> Stefan Chin. What's your tagline? I'm jumping right to it. Jumping right to it. Oh, geez. <laughs> Sour Patch Kids ice cream. And over on the science couch, <laughs> we got Sari Riley. Hello. Uh, what's your tagline? One big noodle. And this week we have a very special guest in place of Hank, SciShow senior producer, Caitlin Hoffmeister. Hello. And lots of other thing producer. Yeah. Producer at large. Yeah. But I am always here. You and are always here just over there yeah. with less yeah. microphone. My ears feel very naked, though, when you started talking. <laughs> I was like, where are my headphones? Oh, no. Caitlin, what's your tagline? My tagline is tuna medicine. Every week on Tangents, we get together and try to one. Oh, God. Wait, yourself. I'm me. 
<laughs> and it's me, Sam Schultz. All right, every week on Tangents, we get together and try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts. We're playing for glory, but we're also keeping score and awarding Hank Bucks from week to week. They can still be Hank Bucks, even though Hank's not here. Sam Bucks? That's fine, that's fine. You can take over. pre-established too much. We do everything we can to stay on topic, but judging by previous conversations with this group, we will not be good at it. So if the rest of the team deems a tangent unworthy, we'll force you to give up one of your Hank Bucks. So tangent with care. And for this, the scariest month of all, we're doing something a little bit different. Each episode in October will cover a topic that is one of our panelists' greatest fears. So to introduce that fear, we will have our traditional science poem by Stephen Chin. How can we fly? By flapping? That kind of makes sense. But I guess with tiny pecks like these, we won't find much success. Can we turn lead into gold? It seems like we're so close, but I guess distilled pee is no philosopher's stone. Why am I sick? Easy, check the balance of your humors. But I guess now we know about bacteria and tumors. Why do human embryos have little neck slits? Well, clearly those are gills, but I guess it turns out we aren't fish before becoming ourselves. Failure is inevitable when you're asking all these questions, and those failures can send you off in better directions. So failure is important. For a fail, I will cheer. For where we have failed, often knowledge is near. Wow. <laughs> it's not a Stefan poem if there's not one rhyme that makes me question all of reality. <laughs> and that was Gills and Ourselves. <laughs> Stefan poems make me feel like the anxiety of my own train of thought <laughs> building up. <laughs> They're a roller coaster in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The theme this week is failure. And it's not Stefan's fear. It's Caitlin's fear. It's my fear. Why did you pick it? Because you're just terrified of it all the time? <laughs> I'm terrified of it all the time. Like you were like, what are you afraid of? And I didn't even think, Mm-mm. Sam. You I said it in failure. <laughs> That's a real fear. Because yeah. you know it's like deep in your gut if Ooh. it just comes out. Yeah. Like it's a motivating fear, though. Like I think it is really good for science. And I think it's good for creativity. But I still fight it. Yeah. I think failure and especially like our kind of career has such a different, we have such a different relationship with it than scientists do. Because when you're looking up like scientific failures, it's usually like they just were wrong and then they figured out what they, what was right. So it's Mm -hmm. good in science. Totally. (laughs) Well, it is good in science. A lot of people still cover it up because of the Mm. way that it's Mm. stigmatized Uh in science so that that's like a whole thing that's going on now where people are trying to get other scientists to publish their failed experiments too so that people can learn from them because right now mostly people just publish their successes Mm -hmm. so we know what worked but people are like retrying things that don't work because no one publishes Mm -hmm. like yeah things that are bad i was reading something i don't know if you guys saw this when you were researching but there's a movement trying to get publications to agree to publish something at the start of the experiment. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. They, it's the that you submit what you're going to do yeah. and then they publish it regardless of what the outcome is. Yeah. And I can't, there's some magazine that's doing it, but I can't remember which one it is. I can't remember either, but I think that's a great idea. Do you think it's a great idea? <laughs> yeah, I so do. I a skeptical Seat. look on your face, I thought. Oh, well, literature reviews are already like a difficult thing like that as being a science student was really hard is like wading through papers and finding what matters and finding what doesn't. Uh But I think it's a good idea overall. I think the the skeptical look on my face was just thinking about the ways that people like cheat their values to make their studies seem more significant in order to get published. The whole publishing of science industry is very fraught and it'd be great if people could just like plug away at their research and collaborate a lot. But there's a lot of like, 
hiding what you know or needing to get funding specifically for what you know and like i don't know whoever publishes first gets the accolades Mm -hmm. instead of just like a collective advancing of our knowledge which is (laughs) the scientific utopia (laughs) not how anything works yeah we all have to be nervous and paranoid about something Mm -hmm. all right well let's move on now to one of our panelists it's me has prepared three science facts for our education and enjoyment but only one of them is real the other three panelists have to figure out either by deduction or wild guess which is the true fact if they do they get a hank book if they are tricked i get a hank book further increasing my lead over all of you Failure is generally something people fear, something to be avoided at all costs. But in the world of science, failure, like I said earlier, it was a great point on my part, can (laughs) frequently lead to new unexpected discoveries. Which of the following inventions was not the product of scientific or technological failure? Number one, bubble wrap was originally pitched as a textured wallpaper to appeal to beatniks in the late 50s. (laughs) (laughs) The idea flopped, but the inventors devised some more useful applications of their sealed air technology. Number two, whoopee cushions were first conceived of in the late 1920s as an inflatable, easily portable bicycle helmet. Unfortunately, (laughs) the inventors were never able to get the rubber helmets to be strong enough to survive an impact on the street they would break. Uh, But the fart sound that they made when they were squeezed led to the development of a classic prank toy. Or number three, Vaseline was originally an unwanted byproduct of oil pumping that would gum up machines. Workers in the oil fields figured out that it was great for protecting and healing burns, though, and they would smear it all over themselves. Someone saw them doing this and basically stole the idea and monetized it and made a bunch of money. Stealing from the worker man. (laughs) Yeah. So, number one. Bubble wrap was invented to make beatniks happy with as wallpaper. Number two, whoopee cushions were an inflatable portable bike helmet. Or number three, Vaseline was an unwanted buildup. Which one of those is not really the origin story of that invention? Can I ask what your definition of a beatnik is? I don't know. <laughs> beatniks were like people in the late 50s. They were kind of like a precursor to like hipsters and hippies and stuff they were the counterculture of that time and they would like listen to jack yeah definitely Mm -hmm. the white counterculture that were like stealing a lot from everybody else's counterculture they would sit in poetry (laughs) bars and listen to jack kerouac say stuff and snap and wear berets things like that the people in cartoons that have like black glasses black berets and bongo drums or Uh something uh, max goof's girlfriend's friend in goofy movie extremely goofy movie i think was yeah. Just to get on your level. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you have to explain yeah. it. Which cartoon character mm-hmm. do I need to point? Definitely to? the bongo drum thing yeah. was a beatnik. That was where that came from. Okay, I would guess they were not homeowners. Maybe mm-hmm. some of them were, but like lived in shitty apartments in New York, mm-hmm. in Greenwich Village, yep. and like would not buy wallpaper. I think they would maybe put up bubble wrap just to be weird. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> or maybe to make it sound better for their poetry readings or something. Yeah, mm. like like insulation or yeah. something. Whoopee cushion bicycle helmet. Sounds too wild to me, but maybe that means it's true. Just like a farting bicycle helmet. Only if you crash. <laughs> Only if you, you crash. <laughs> and it doesn't work and just is like... Yeah, you get a hurt head, like a bruise on your face, and it farts. And everybody laughs at you. Yeah. <laughs> there is an invention today that, that looks like a scarf, and it like deflates like an airbag and comes over your head like a hood. 
I believe that like people are thinking about that. I can't imagine a human <laughs> has ever looked at a whoopee cushion and thought this could protect me. They didn't know what they were yet. Impact. They just got invented. I guess like if you think of them as airbags, like what if yeah. you line your face with airbags and those airbags just happen to fart? Okay, you guys got to no. guess now. Yeah, I guess. Okay, I'm going to go with whoopee cushion heads. That's not the origin story. Oh, no. No, yeah, sorry. I forgot. So we two like, of them are real? Two of them are real. No. One of them oh is fake. Oh, my God. I'm going to Okay, go I've been Nick thinking wallpaper. about this all wrong. <laughs> yeah. Wait. Sorry. I was trying to make oh. that very clear by saying- You did. I just forgot. Yeah, yeah. One of the origin stories is a lie. One of them is a lie. And two of them are true. Yeah. Ugh. I think the beatnik wallpaper is fake. Uh, yeah, if there's only one of these that's fake, it's the wallpaper. But I don't know. The whoopee cushion still... I'm going to say whoopee cushion. Okay. Oh, I'm in. I'm going to go in on whoopee cushion, too. <gasps> okay, so you're both saying that one's... The whoopee cushion's yeah. fake. The fake, yeah. And Caitlin's saying the bubble wrap. The real fake one is whoopee cushions. That is not the Ooh, origin of okay. whoopee cushions. That was great sound. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking exactly of the it. thing you were talking about <laughs> that inflates over your head when you get in a crash. Yeah. But whoopee cushions were invented to be whoopee cushions. That's it. They just were Wait, for a fun. So, <laughs> so bubble wrap was invented for beatniks to put on their walls. Yep. So originally, I hate that. Alfred Fielding and Mark Chavanes invented it as a wallpaper using two pieces of shower curtain that they heat sealed together. But eventually, they figured out that the heat sealing process they invented, because nobody wanted to buy their wallpaper, was more lucrative. So they started heat sealing everything they could think of. It seems like, and eventually, <laughs> IBM paid them to develop a packing material for one of their early computers. And that's how that took off. Their company was called the Sealed Air Company. Cool name. (laughs) Vaseline was, air quotes, discovered by Robert Augustus Chesseborough, who owned a failing kerosene business in Brooklyn. And he went to Pennsylvania to see what this oil boom was all about. And while he was there, he saw some dudes like take a big glob of stuff off of a machine that was seized up because it was globbed up and they were rubbing it on like a wound or something and Mm -hmm. they told him that it helped him heal faster and protected it so then he went home and he stole he like took some of the goo with him purified it and invented vaseline and became like a billionaire or something how were whoopee cushions invented so one thing i read said that some ancient roman emperor invented whoopee cushions but what he really invented after i read more about it was like this prank chair and he would like deflate the chair while his friends were sitting on it and then they would be on the floor and everybody would laugh and laugh so there were like some kind of air cushion based pranks going on so in ancient realm they had this inflatable furniture from the 90s yeah. and yeah. you would just like poke a hole in it yeah and then I mean, ancient roman emperors were like pretty young right so this one was yeah. the youngest one ever yeah. who, who, who they were talking about so i think probably people have been inflating things and making them make fart sounds since the beginning I love of the that whoopee cushion is not something that could be discovered. It exists in its own way in every civilization. Yeah. Yeah. It's from prehistory. Yeah. <laughs> it's very important that all cultures discover a farting bag. Yeah. And you know what? In Canada, it was invented in Canada, like the one that we know okay. was made mm. in Canada. It has been so long since I've seen anyone do the like armpit fart. I've never been able to do it. I also haven't been able to really? do it. Can you I do it? To, I don't I don't know if I want to try. Try right now. Yes. <laughs> we got a got yes, it. not from Tuna. Okay. And now we're going to take a quick break. And yeah. when we come back, the, the fact, off. fact off. Thank you. Uh. <laughs> 
SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services, these things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast aspersions? Dispersions? Yeah. Aspersions. One of those. Aspersions. Yeah. But... It does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun mm-hmm. burns out. And you know yeah. what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. <laughs> you want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. Yeah. That yeah. bean's not going to grow if there's a constant drain on the the bean, that (laughs) is where rocket money comes in with rocket money. You can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want and cancel things with just a tap rocket money. will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and beyond I mean, beans and beyond subscription canceling (laughs) rocket money helps you build budgets, track your spending and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans. So they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. (laughs) (laughs) Different kind of bean, I guess. A cheaper, beans, more yeah. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> Subscription <laughs> companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use that money for beans instead. Stop wasting <laughs> money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your unwanted <laughs> subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. All right, we are back. Sari, you have one point. Yay. Caitlin, you have zero points. I'm so sorry. (gasps) I'm failing. I'm on topic. (laughs) (laughs) We're just really making you experience the fear. That's part of fear month. We'll have to, everyone is going to have to confront their fear. You're failing your own episode about failure. (laughs) What you listeners don't know is that we're all in a dark room covered in creepy crawlies. We're in underground and we're in coffins. We all have our own coffin. That would sound so much better. That would sound really (laughs) I would never do a podcast in those conditions. Well, you wouldn't sound good then and we all would. We told you it was a sound booth, (laughs) Stefan. This is actually a coffin on top of a funeral home. We made Stefan dig his own sound booth. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. I have one point and Stefan, congratulations. You have two points. Thank you. Because Hank's not here. Hank's your bad luck charm, I think. Ooh. Yeah, I think yeah. I almost think you should get a bonus point for your armpit. Hell yeah. Let's give yeah. them a bonus yeah. point. Yeah. Hank's out of town. <laughs> there are no rules. Now, everybody get ready for the fact off. Two panelists bring science facts to present to the others in an attempt to blow their slash our minds. The presentees each have a Hank book to award to the fact they like the most. But if both the facts stink on ice, the presentees can choose not to award their hang book and instead throw them into the witch's cauldron. 
this week is Sari versus Caitlin, and we will decide who goes first based on who had the lowest GPA in high school. I don't remember getting lower than an A in a class. Ever. So Sari probably has a four point and probably even higher than a four point because weighted means that you would have a five point class. Yeah. Mm. We need some uh, high schoolers to listen to the show and tell us if we're wrong. Write us in high schoolers. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us what the heck we're talking about. I once got a C in chemistry. Oh, okay. And then I came back and got an A the next semester. So I have between like a three, six, and a four. Like I you did not have smart. Right now. That's still lower so than Sarah, I'm though. So you go first. Okay. <laughs> 3.6 is a very good GPA. Don't consider yourself a failure. It's so liberating to get that first bad grade, though. It was liberating to get that bad grade because it's like the class I tried the hardest in oh. and like liked the most. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, grades don't matter in the way that I thought, you know? Oh, that's interesting. Like, that happened to me in college, like freshman year of college, because everything was so much harder than I yeah. expected it to be. And I was like, ah, I'm getting C's in like physics and this advanced math class that I'm taking. And it doesn't really matter. They also do at MIT, the first semester is pass no record. So your grades get erased oh, because wow. everyone was so stressed out heading into the school that huh. they're like, okay, this doesn't affect your GPA at all. You either get a pass or the class disappears from your record for all eternity. But if you pass, it doesn't disappear from no. your record? Huh. And you can like ask your advisor for your grade if you want to. So you don't you... even know if what you how badly you failed if yeah. you fail. Oh, yeah, you don't know how well you passed it if you passed or how badly you failed it if you fail. Hmm. Mostly I wanted to know my biology grade because that was what I was going to major in. So I was like, did I get an A in this class? What was because it? it felt good. I did get an A in biology. I got a C in multivariable calculus and <laughs> physics. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I got a D in German. Mm-hmm. It was a pity D. <laughs> Caitlin's going first. Is the, is the point of this? Since Hank's not here, I'm going to talk about him. Once in like 2012 or 2013, he wanted to do a SciShow episode on the deadliest animal ever. Hmm. And was like really excited about it. And everybody was like getting excited. And I was like, mosquito. And they were like, oh. (laughs) And that was like the end of the conversation. Mosquitoes are like not cute. They're not fun to do episodes about. They are annoying and they spread like malaria and West Nile virus and they're bad. And they look like bad guys and they are bad guys. They feed bats, which is their one redeeming quality. So in like 2013, a group of geneticists wanted to reduce the population of Aedes aegypti mosquitoes in Brazil. They're the type that carry Zika and dengue, and they're often just called yellow fever mosquitoes because mm. they carry yellow fever. When we think about like reducing bug population, we just think about killing bugs, but these are geneticists. And so they work in like generations over time. So their plan was to reduce the population over generations. And this company called Oxytech Limited is a British biotech company that genetically modifies insects to control their populations, sometimes called living insecticide. The idea was to transgenically modify male Aegypti mosquitoes so they had a dominant gene that would limit the development of the mosquito, meaning at a certain point their cells just stop functioning normally. Do they just keel over or is it just they can't They kind of like, I think they're like unattractive is like how it was (laughs) described in in a couple of things. But I think they just keel over or just can't reproduce or there's something wrong with them. It's like limiting. They eventually just die really young. Mm -hmm. And so since this is a genetic trait, it's a gene, it gets passed down to offspring. And then the offspring also have this self-limiting gene since it's a dominant gene and died young, presumably before they've had a chance to mate, lowering the population of Aedes aegypti overall. So they took a strain of A.E. aegypti mosquitoes that were found in Mexico and Cuba, modified this gene so it would self-limit, quote-unquote self-limit, then released the males in Brazil to hopefully reduce the Zika-transmitting population. 
Oh, no, I bet it didn't work. Yeah, so if you're following this logic, they're using reproduction to produce offspring that can't reproduce. Hmm. That's a bad idea. It doesn't make any sense. The father mosquitoes could reproduce, even though they had this gene. And these scientists clearly never watched Jurassic Park. Life finds a way. So, obviously, 10 to 60% of the AE Aegypti population in this trail are now hybrid mosquitoes with this dominant gene that's supposed to mean that they can't exist. These populations have rebounded to near pre-release levels now. The study I was reading was about this Brazilian population, but they've done it in other places too, I guess. And none of them seem to work. The genetically modified strain was from a population found in Mexico and Cuba and then bred with the Brazilian population so they can survive in lots of places. So they're being described as a robust population that might Uh, eventually replace the original insects. So super mosquitoes. Yeah. That like maybe aren't going to do any worse damage than the originals, but it failed. So they still have the gene. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to actually be doing anything. Probably it's doing a little bit and some of them probably aren't able to reproduce, but Uh enough of them are that it hasn't really affected. Like they're saying that both in the lab and in real life, like it dips for a little bit by by 18 months, it's like back up to normal levels. So they're supposed to breed and have the sick babies. Right. And then they're supposed to just like go down in population and die. die. But that's not really how populations work. Uh-uh. So they would have had to keep introducing, I think, yeah. maybe males with this mm-hmm. strain right, of right. They'd have to have more of them limiting being... gene. The males with the gene were able to mate. But it was stopping their offspring from growing properly. Yeah. So it like mm. is limiting enough so that they could survive, but were hindered by it. But if you like dump that gene into a baby, it can't grow big and strong. Like hmm. that's the difference. So they can't get to the mating. Yeah, they point can't get of to their the lives. Point. Point. So yeah. the goal was just to like decrease population over one generation. Yeah. So or they, like you'd have to keep doing a bunch of genetic experiments, keep mutating males, and then releasing them uh, in waves to be like, okay. Mate and have babies that don't grow up. So they just not do that? It sounds like they didn't do it or didn't do it enough. Enough of them in the next generation could mate. It sounds like the gene didn't work like they thought it would. Like Mm -hmm. even though they put in this self-limiting gene to prevent offspring from developing, some of them did anyway. Mm -hmm. And so then it was like, well, why did we even mutate them in the first place? Because we didn't do a good job stopping their babies from developing. Right. Great fact. Sari, what's your great fact? (laughs) It also... Has to do a little bit with mosquitoes and also has to do with the question of what if we killed off a bunch of stuff. As the Communist Party in China rose in 1949, one of the really big efforts was to fend off infectious disease. And so there were things like massive vaccination campaigns, um, more sanitation infrastructure and more public health personnel. But as Caitlin mentioned, we hate mosquitoes and like <laughs> we look at them and think that they cause disease. So there was also a public health campaign called the Four Pests Campaign, where they wanted everyone to target vectors of disease, rodents for the plague, mosquitoes for malaria, flies because they were annoying and landed on poop, and <laughs> Eurasian tree sparrows, which ate grain seeds that had a lot of labor to plant. Um, uh-huh. So like it took a lot of steps to seed rice paddies. And so they wanted to combat disease, which is public health related, but also starvation. Um, and even as advised by some biologists, the sparrows were considered menaces to farming. And this became kind of a national duty 
thing where everyone is encouraged to jump on board to like swat flies and kill mosquitoes and stab rats or whatever. And like one quote says, the Chinese people took to the streets, clanging their pots and pans or beating drums to terrorize the birds and prevent them from landing. So like exhaust birds so they can't rest. This is where it gets a little dicey because reporting from Western countries gets a little biased and I can't read Chinese. So... I'm going to try to present this in an objective way. One article said that 1 billion sparrows, 1.5 billion rats, 100 million kilograms of flies, and 11 million kilograms of mosquitoes were destroyed over the four pests campaign. Because of that, many infectious diseases had their scope diminished. But what they failed to predict from killing all these things was the massive impacts on the ecosystem. In this case, the sparrows had the biggest impact Hmm. because any benefit they got from killing them got counteracted because other pests like locusts started Whoa. rising up and eating the grains. Mm-hmm. And the scientists and the government started to realize this was the case because they autopsied some sparrows and realized that there were more insects than grains in their stomach. Uh, and they were like, oh no, <laughs> we're killing the wrong thing. And then there was some messaging readjustment where they, I don't know, repainted the posters and were like, don't kill sparrows, They're kill bed bugs. Yeah, yeah, sparrows are our friends, bed bugs are the enemy. <laughs> and there are other sociopolitical factors that contributed to this, but some experts think that the sparrow extermination contributed to the Great Chinese Famine, which happened from spring 1959 to spring 1961. And it was like a very, very bad famine. Or at the very least, it was enough of a problem that they had to start importing sparrows from the then Soviet Union to like mitigate the ecological effects because they killed so many of them. And so this isn't to say China bad. To be totally clear, just because I have to say that explicitly. Birds good. Birds good. And this is one of many instances where like humans made decisions trying to make things better and then we failed very badly and made things worse. (laughs) And there are lots of good posters too, right? There's a good poster and we can link to it. But it's like everything, all the pests impaled on a sword. It's very dramatic. The power of graphic design. So then at some point, maybe there was a version of this poster where they had hastily painted over the bird. Yeah, painted over the bird and just like drawn another big bug. (laughs) This is is tough. They're both mosquito facts. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give it to Caitlin. (gasps) I'm going to give mine to Sari. Because I like that poster a lot. <laughs> That's the only reason. <laughs> Very good poster. If you can find a good poster for your thing, oh, no. then I'll give you the points. No, I think they're trying to like not draw a lot of attention. Yeah, they don't really want people yeah. to know about that. They're genetically altering things and releasing them into the environment. Well, now we have a very special Ask the Science Couch this week to fit in with our theme of failure. We're answering a question from an episode that we recorded but lost due to technical difficulties. <laughs> the topic of the episode that you'll never get to hear was environmental disasters. But people still sent in questions and Sari still researched them. So, <laughs> <laughs> Stefan, do you want to read the question? Sure. At Mizuki Ayu asks... Have there been any observed adaptations in wildlife that suggest they are becoming better equipped to survive our disasters? Kind of like the straw, the bees that lived in straws you talked about a couple weeks ago. Yeah, straw bees. Diana Six is a tree biologist. She was on SciShow Talk Show a while back. And, um, and when you're a tree biologist, you also have to study the bugs that eat trees. And she talked about how the white pine beetle is like swooping in and killing all these trees Mm -hmm. and that's horrible and they usually die in the winter but they're not because the climate is changing and winter's not as cold but following up on her studies a few years later she realized that the pine beetles are eating trees that are more adapted for cold 
and leaving trees that are more adapted for warmer weather. Whoa. That's just what she's like observing. Uh-huh. But like trees have defense mechanisms and they are not selfish. You know, they sacrifice if one tree is not going to make it, another tree could use that energy because they're connected uh, via like mycorrhizal fungi and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So the theory is, I think it's very early, the theory is that the trees are adapting and the beetles are part of that adaptation. And I think that is where the most observed adaptations have been is related to climate change. Mm-hmm. There are birds or rodents or other species that are changing when they breed and when babies are born to adapt to the climate and survive better as the the weather changes and mm-hmm. like you don't want your babies to freeze and you don't want them to hatch too early or too late and have time to grow yeah, yeah. and have like time them when there's food mm-hmm. but i also brought examples of more extreme disasters like more extreme failures mm-hmm. you might consider nice <laughs> so there are super fun sites in the u.s and mm-hmm. like the berkeley pit and butte uh-huh. so super fun sites are usually where like toxic waste has been spilled or I don't know, garbage is built up and converted into other chemicals. And it's become a dangerous enough site that the U.S. government has devoted money to cleaning it up and making it not toxic for people who live nearby. And some of these super fun sites are bodies of water where um, people have dumped industrial waste, like heavy metals and hydrocarbons and other chemicals that are toxic to the life inside it. But an animal called a killifish, the Atlantic killifish, which is known for being a model organism for some things like development and toxicology and metabolism, are also really sturdy. And we found a mutation in certain populations of killifish living in Superfund sites called the AHR mutation, which is the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which regulates the immune system. And what it seems like it does is it like switches off their immune system mm-hmm. so that they can swim in toxic waters without getting hurt what? and then they can turn it back on nope. no they okay. just survive they just don't have an immune system basically <sighs> it sounds like what happens is they modify their immune system somehow so that it doesn't consider the toxins as toxic and then they just like live their lives they can't be entirely well yeah, they're probably not entirely well, but they survive instead of dying right oh, away. Okay. What's a model organism? So a model organism, lab rats are considered to be a model organism. They're things that we experiment in to test drugs in humans or test out what genes do. So usually they have like a similar gene profile to humans or they, if you break certain genes, they react in similar ways as hmm. if you broke those in humans. Mm-hmm. And so they're just like useful organisms that don't have the ethical implications of experimenting in monkeys or humans but it's just a little fish yeah because just a little fish they breed quickly yeah you can like get a bunch of them and try try things like you don't feel bad well you do feel bad i experimented with mice once and i felt so bad but you don't feel as bad introducing toxins into their system and seeing which ones develop cancer or something like that. That's something you can do with a model organism, but not with like a human population necessarily. So there's killifish in labs somewhere having experiments done to them? Yeah, lots of killifish in labs having experiments done. And also killifish living in extremely toxic water and just kind of chugging along. And we're like, I guess they're surviving and have (laughs) genetic mutations to do so. Yeah, Um, but they probably are like, I don't feel so good. Yeah. Yeah. 
If you want to ask the Science Couch, follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we'll tweet out the topics for upcoming episodes every week. And even if the episode gets deleted, we'll figure out a way to answer your question. <laughs> Thank you to at Rage Against Twit, at Bree Beecher, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions for this last episode. Final Hank Buck scores. Caitlin and Sam, me and you. One point. Last place. We don't have to fail alone. In second place, Sari with two points. Mm -hmm. And in very first place, Stefan Chin. With a bonus point. Three points. Bonus point for farting armpit. We can never tell Hank that a fart got Stefan another point. (laughs) Otherwise, he'll be insufferable. He'll be coming in here with talents all the time. Well, he got an extra point when he brought his guitar. That's true. It's a a musical instrument point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Mm. that you wanted that extra point. So you are just a sucker for talents, Caitlin. I am. (laughs) Sari's got to come in here and finish us and she'll get a point. Oh, yeah. I don't have any talent, so my talent <laughs> is being good at the show. <laughs> That's why you're the host. <laughs> if you like the show and you want to help us out, it's really easy to do that. First, leave a review wherever you listen. It's super helpful and it helps us know what you think about the show. And also, we are still looking at iTunes reviews for topic ideas. More of those are coming in the future after Fear Month. Second, tweet out your favorite moment from this episode. And finally, if you want to show your support and love for SciShow Tangents, you can just tell, tell people, people about, about us. us. Tell Caitlin people did. about it. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to read more about any of the things any of us talked about, you can check out scishowtangents.org to find links to the topics, pictures of propaganda posters about killing animals, and all kinds of stuff like that. Thank you for joining us. I've been Sam Schultz. I've been Stefan Chin. I've been Caitlin Hoffmeister. And I've been Sari Riley. That was weird. We went in yeah. a different order. <laughs> it was all wrong. <laughs> SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the wicked, wonderful team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Caitlin. Caitlin Hoffmeister and me, Sam Schultz, who also edits a lot of these episodes along with Hiroko Matsushima. Our eerie editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarti. Our sinister sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish, who is also recording this episode. He's in the room with us right now. Oh. Our scary social media organizer is Victoria Bongiorno, and we couldn't make any of this without our putrid patrons on Patreon. <laughs> Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a coffin to be filled, but a jack-o'-lantern to be lighted. <laughs> But one more thing. (laughs) Some people have been trying to do fecal transplants by making capsules of microbes that simulate the composition of poop instead of actually collecting and freezing poop. Mm -hmm. And one of these, called SER109, was designed with 50 species of microbes to treat recurring Clostridium difficile infections, which cause intestinal inflammation. C. diff is bad, 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 bad. And in June 2015, the U.S. FDA considered it an especially promising therapy. But in July 2016, it underwent a phase two drug trial and didn't do any better than placebo. So scientists think there's something about the whole community of poop microbes that make it special. And these fake poop pills were a failure. Even though it's the same exact thing? Basically the same thing, but not all the nuances of the species. They just picked like the 50 most prominent that they think make up poop. Mm, Right. But then scientists are like, no, every single like weird microbe in poop makes a difference, probably. That's beautiful. That is really beautiful. Mm